My name is Daniel Obert, and I study law. Hi, my name is Kevin, and I have a podcast. On this episode of Why Do You Do That? My guest is Daniel Obert. Daniel is my oldest friend. Uh, we've been friends since preschool, carpooled to middle school together, goofed off next to each other in high school band, and visited each other's schools during our college years. We definitely don't talk enough, so I'm glad to have had the opportunity to talk to him on the show. Uh, we do run a little bit longer than my other episodes, but I'm not going to lie, I think the best stuff is at the end. Daniel is great, an absolute joy to get to talk to, and I'm glad to have known him for the past two decades. I hope you enjoy getting to know him a little bit better over the next hour and a half. Hello and welcome. My name is Kevin, and as a reminder, I have a podcast. This is it. My guest this week is Daniel Obert. Daniel, welcome. I'm excited to talk to you about law school today. Uh, the entire concept of careers that require, you know, very explicitly require school beyond undergrad is kind of interesting to me as, as someone who did uh, an engineering degree, which is basically just kind of for and done situation. Um, it's, it's something that's a little foreign. So I'm super excited to, to go deeper with you today. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, hopefully we can clear up some confusion and give some insights into what law school is like. Yeah, certainly. I'm really excited. Um, so I figured we'll, we'll start out the pod today uh, with a little bit of college prep class, just since I think we, we have some hurdles to get over of establishing, I don't know, a, a common common vocabulary, maybe just an understanding of what the entire process of applying to law school is like, uh, and, and I guess just like how a lot of students get there is a, is a great place to start. And we'll go into the other subjects after that. So yeah, sure. could you maybe give us a, a high level overview of what it's like to go to law school from, uh, from high school all the way through getting a job? <laughs> all right, cool. So um, what, how you alluded to earlier, uh, law school is separate from undergraduate uh, college degree. You typically do it afterwards. Um, some people go straight through, so you can go high school, undergrad, law school, um, and then you'll just have seven straight years of education post high school graduation, because law school is typically three years. Um, but a lot of other people will, after undergrad, take a few years, get a job, make some money, um, and then come back to law school. And some people, you know, have a long period of time between when they went to undergraduate and law school because they're doing some sort of career shift. Uh, in my experience at Notre Dame Law School, I'd say it's around like 40, 40, 20, 40% uh, uh, people like me who went straight through, 40% who had maybe like one to three gap years and then uh, a handful of people who, who have a more lengthy period of other work other than uh, the law. Sure, so like um, listening to uh, any of the Obama autobiographies, either Michelle's or Barack's, um, Barack had his, his kind of gap there as a, he was a community organizer, I believe, before he went to law school, and that's why he's a little bit older than Michelle, so he was, in that gap range? Yep, and so people, you know, applying to law school come from a variety of different backgrounds. Um, 
Some have a lot of job experience that they can put on their resume and that's part of how they market themselves. Uh, others, you know, they're basically straight out of college. Um, so one of the big things that law schools use in order to value students and to determine who they want to admit, um, the, the big two numbers are your undergraduate GPA and your LSAT score. So there's the LSAT, Law School Admissions Test, which is commonly referred to as the LSAT, um, kind of like the SAT that most high school students take uh, go to apply for undergraduate college. Um, the, so those two numbers, your LSAT score and your GPA are, I wouldn't say like the only thing that matters uh, because obviously you have to, you know, do other things like you put in your resume and you do, you know, letters of recommendation and personal statements and all that stuff. Um, but for the most part, uh, it's, it's pretty, you can determine with near certainty what types of schools will consider you based off of your GPA and, and your LSAT score. Um, and then at the margins, those other things might make a difference. Okay. What sort of, what sort of questions are on the LSAT? Is it like logical? Is it computational? Yes. Do you have to know stuff about law already? So no, it is not about um, like the law itself. It is purely testing the skills that uh, the law school or the law school admissions council believes are necessary for law students. So, you know, you don't have to have any particular undergraduate major um, before going to law school. So, you know, there are certainly some majors that lend themselves more to developing the skills for law school. And they sort of use that LSAT as, uh, you know, an equalizer. It's going to test a variety of things so that they can determine, you know, regardless of what you majored in, do you have the skills? And so what the LSAT tests, if I remember correctly, um, is reading comprehension, uh, logical reasoning. There's a, usually a writing prompt and there's also what they call analytical reasoning, but what it's referred to by most people are logic games. Um, so to unpack each of those a little bit, um, reading comprehension, very similar to what you'd have on the SAT, um, you know, read a passage, answer questions about it. Um, and you know, that's, that is what it is. Uh, logical reasoning are logical questions. So it'll give you, you know, a paragraph with a bunch of statements and, you know, you have to determine what sentence logically follows from the above paragraph, or they'll have, you know, a bunch of information and you're going to determine, you know, identify which is a logical fallacy in this uh, strain of argument or something like that. Writing prompt, pretty simple. It's a writing prompt. They give you a choice between two different um, short like policy outcomes and you just advocate one or the other. They're usually a, a pretty 50-50 issue. So there can be good arguments on either side. And then uh, logic games is sort of like the most unique aspect of the LSAT. A lot of people say that, you know, you live or die by the logic games. There's, they're <laughs> the ones that you can study the most and improve the most sure. because, you know, think about something like reading comprehension. 
most people, their reading comprehension abilities have been slowly developed over years and years and years of schooling. And so it's really hard within a couple months of studying for this test to meaningfully change your reading comprehension skills. I mean, at the margins you can, but it's you know sort of like momentum. It's hard to steer a large ship. Um, but logic games on the other hand is something that uh, almost nobody has practical experience doing. And so it's something that you can develop a skill really quickly because there's a lot of momentum you can get on the learning curve there really early on. Um, a lot of people uh, suggest, this is sort of among law students, that logic games really have nothing to do with being a lawyer, uh, except that it's a completely meaningless task that you have to learn how to be really <laughs> good at in a couple months. And that is a skill you need for law school. All right, um, yeah. And so they just pick some random task. So these logic games, um, they... I actually remember doing things similar to them, like in elementary school even, where basically what you'll get is uh, a bunch of rules and then you have to determine what outcomes are acceptable under the rules. So like, for instance, I'll think of a easy one. You could have um, Abby, Bob, Chris, and Dave all have to sit in four seats in a row arranged from left to right. Chris and Dave must sit next to each other. Abby must sit either on the leftmost or rightmost chair. And um, if Abby is sat in the leftmost chair, or sorry, sorry. If, if Abby is sitting in the leftmost chair or the rightmost chair, Bob must sit to her immediate right. Um, and so like, then you have to determine, okay, under those rules, what are the possible orderings of people into those four chairs? And so I think the way that I phrased it, the only possible order is just in A, B, C, D order. Um, but that's like a very simple one. A lot of them become very complex with sure. a lot of different rules. Um, and there is a whole industry uh, of test prep to understand how to do these games well and quickly. Um, and th that's a huge part of what the LSAT is. So in my personal experience, I, during my senior year of undergrad, basically from like Christmas up until June, studied for the LSAT pretty rigorously, um, especially right after graduation my full-time job for the month of May, basically, was studying for this test. Um, and I got uh, good enough scores that I was in the 75th percentile for both of the law schools that I was sort of eyeing that I wanted to go to, Notre Dame Law School and uh, Indiana, University's, uh, Indiana University School of Law down in Bloomington. So I was, and, and my GPA was in a good place for those two. So um, I was in good shape for applying for both those schools. Um, I applied to both of them, was accepted by both and chose to go to Notre Dame. Um, so to step back a little bit, um, it's pretty unique that I only applied to two law schools. Yeah, I think students actually, if you, if you heard that, if you heard that right there, uh, I think the bell just rang and... 
Yep. And that was the bell. Um, I think it's time for math class there. So we've, we've talked about your LSAT numbers and your, your GPA and everything and, and kind of how those are important. But yeah, you said two places that you applied to. How many, how many places do most people apply? That's a great question that I don't completely know the answer to. Um, I know that there's like forums like on Reddit. So like there's like a law school admissions forum on Reddit where a lot of people talk about the schools that they apply to. And it's not unusual to see people apply to like north of 10 law schools on those wow, forums. Okay. But I don't know that that's a representative sample necessarily. There's a little because, bias to it maybe. Yeah, I mean, they're the type of people that are posting on Reddit about their uh, admissions process. They might they're going to be the ones that are about the hashtag grind. <laughs> yeah, um, but I, I do think that definitely me just applying to two was below average. Um, and the main reason for that was, uh, so I'm originally from South Bend. Um, oh, wait. Oh, and there's the bell again. Wow. Math class was really short time for geography. Maybe. All right. Well, that yeah, was so... a really short class. Maybe we can go back. Uh, nope. Nope. We're done with math. It's done. <laughs> I, I remember how excited you were to be done with math when we graduated high school. So we're just done with that, it. <laughs> that's why I went to law school. Don't have yep. to do math. Uh-huh. So yeah, geography. But, uh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm from South Bend. Um, you know, you and I uh, went to school together, and uh, my family's from South Bend. My wife's family is from South Bend, and so I always had in my mind that it would be really nice to practice law in South Bend. Um, South Bend is obviously a smaller legal market than, say, Chicago, New York, DC, something like that. Yeah. But uh, that's sort of more what I was interested in, what I am interested in. And it's large enough that there's still, you know, complex, me meaningful work to do that I would enjoy. Um, so it sort of hits that sweet spot. And so when I was applying to law schools, the main thing in my mind was what law school is going to set me up best to practice in South Bend. Right. And um, is it true... When you uh, when you graduate from law school and you take the bar exam, it does that make you only eligible to practice law in the state that you took the bar exam in? Yes. So every jurisdiction, every state has its own bar exam that you have to take. Um, now, it used to be the the case that like those bar exams were completely different, and you would study for one. And you would take that one and, you know, say I take the Indiana bar, that's completely different than the Michigan bar or the Illinois bar and, and sort of limit my practice there. There's been development in the past several years to make the bar exam process a little bit more uniform state to state. So what you'll have is a lot of states adopting what's called the uniform bar exam, where a lot of areas of the law that are basically identical state to state are going to be tested on one test. So it's, you know, the same for everyone. And then each state will have its own sort of like local law section that okay. you have to do. Yeah. Um, and there's also, uh, in a lot of cases, there's retroposity from state to state. So if I were to say, get the Indiana, if I were to pass the Indiana bar exam, I were licensed to practice in Indiana. And then I wanted to go move down to Kentucky and practice. Um, if Indiana and Kentucky have retroprocity, um, which I'm not sure off the top of my head that they do or not, then I would be able to just go to Kentucky and say, hey, I'm licensed to practice in Indiana. 
can I fill out the paperwork and be licensed to practice in Kentucky? And then they would say, yeah, sure. And then it's, so it's not like I have to take a bunch of tests, mm-hmm. but it's not uncommon for people who want to practice in multiple jurisdictions to take multiple state bar exams. Okay. So, um, so you're kind of hoping for, for there to be like, is there a combination between Indiana, a recipro- reciprocity between yeah. Indiana and Michigan since South Bend is, is right there on that state line. I'm, I'm going to guess that some people in Niles probably would appreciate someone associating them from South Bend at times. Yes, yes. So uh, there's definitely a lot of people who practice in South Bend who are licensed both in Michigan and Indiana. Um, I'm not 100% sure if there's full reciprocity between Indiana and Michigan or if they're separate exams. I'm pretty sure there's reciprocity. Um, But yeah, it's very common for people to take both uh, tests or get one and then after the fact, take the other. If they practice, you know, on the border like South Bend or, you know, someone say we're practicing in the Quad Cities area, they would probably want to get both the Illinois and the Iowa absolutely uh, licensing. So So it feels like it feels kind of like a, a pretty obvious thing. Like if you're going to IU's law school, that the other school that you applied to, you'd probably want to be practicing in Indiana. But with a, a private school like Notre Dame, maybe there's a little bit less of a connection to the state itself. Is it by your, your third year in law school, are people studying for different exams because they're trying to get positions in different in different states? So yes and no. Indiana, um, because it's sort of like, you know, Indiana's state school does have like a focus on the Indiana bar. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, through their classes, prepare people specifically for that bar. Um, But that's not to say that people who go to IU don't go all over the country. You know, I use a decently ranked school so people are going to be going there from all over and then they'll be going everywhere from it. Um, Notre Dame, because it's a private school and because it's sort of known for having a national reach, doesn't have as much of a focus on Indiana as far as like Indiana law per se. Um, but the fact that it's in South Bend uh, makes it so that there's a lot of um professors who are well-versed in Indiana law, um, especially when we have like practicing attorneys come in and as adjuncts for specific classes, they are, sure. you know, obviously teaching from an Indiana law perspective. Um, and also it's really, I, I don't, I don't mean to d- diminish the differences in state law from state to state, but it's not that hard to figure out like the differences from state to state. Um, most of the law is pretty similar from state to state and you just sort of have to spend a couple months on your own just sort of finding out what are the quirks of the state that I want to practice in against Mm -hmm. sort of like the general rule and so it's not really necessary to have a specific class in that state's law Um, it's something that you can sort of study on your own if you want that's that's my plan and that's the plan of of most people at Notre Dame Okay. So like, I know at one point we were talking about kind of the, the role of, of precedence 
um, in, in law and maybe, you know, you're not arguing like, oh, this is precisely what the law says, but this is the, the precedent for how it's been interpreted, that sort of thing. Does precedents change from state to state? Like if there was a case in California that was ruled one way because of a law and Indiana has a similar law, can you use the precedents in California to make your case in Indiana? So again, it depends. <laughs> We're really gonna get into the weeds about this uh, if you'd like. So- Yeah, yeah, let's get in the weeds. Um, different states are different jurisdictions. And so the precedents of say the Indiana Supreme Court would be what we call mandatory authority over lower Indiana courts. So if the Supreme Court of Indiana has said, this is what statute A means, and this is how we should interpret it, that is going to be the governing law of how that statute should be interpreted, unless the Indiana state legislature itself were to say, amend the statute or pass another statute saying, this is how we want this statute interpreted. Um, if I were to be practicing in Indiana and I were arguing an issue that the Indiana Supreme Court or no other Indiana Court of Appeals or anything like that had spoken on, but the California Supreme Court had spoken on, I could use that precedent as what we call persuasive authority. So it would say, so here's, what's Cal here's what California is doing and because they do it this way and here's why they do it this way, they defended their position in their opinion. This is why Indiana should adopt this rule as well. And then the court would consider that, but they wouldn't be under the same duty to follow it as they would if it were within their same jurisdiction. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. So how does that work on the federal level with cases that are maybe, uh, I guess maybe we should just have you try to kind of explain, can you explain the pipeline from, uh, and I know this doesn't really, probably doesn't really happen, but uh, traffic violation in South Bend, Indiana to Supreme Court. Okay, so there is no pipeline from traffic <laughs> violation in South Bend, Indiana, the Supreme Court. All right. Because uh, there are two different court systems. Okay, okay, yeah. There's state court and federal court. And I'm oversimplifying. So if there are any like law students out there, please don't stone me. But there are two, there are two sim, uh, systems, the state system and the federal system. Fe the federal system only comes into play when we're dealing with federal law or we have what's called diversity jurisdiction where we have a plaintiff and a defendant from different states against each other, okay? Again, oversimplification. State court is what applies when all the parties are from the same state and or it's only dealing with state law. So if I were to get a speeding ticket, that would be a violation of either state law or most likely a local ordinance. That would end up in the Indiana state court system. And 
I would go to an, an initial, I mean, with something as small as that, I'd probably go to like traffic court or something like that. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, Moving beyond like, the fact that it's a traffic violation. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually, say I really, really wanted to, to fight this, I could appeal it all the way to the Indiana Supreme Court. And on matters of Indiana state law, the Indiana Supreme Court would be sort of like the last word. Um, the only time that an Indiana Supreme, uh, Supreme Court case would get to the US Supreme Court is if there was an argument that something about the Indiana Supreme Court's ruling violated federal law, including the constitution. So that is how you would get something to the Supreme Court from the state court system. What's much more common for cases that end up getting to the Supreme Court is that they start out as federal cases. So if I were to, um, if I were to make a contract to sell my lawnmower to a person in Niles, Michigan, and they refuse to pay me, and so there's a breach of contract, that would be diversity jurisdiction, um, and so there's also like a, a minimum amount of money that, uh, has to be in dispute for federal courts to come in. So let's say it's not a lawnmower, but like a house, like a very expensive house. Um, there's a breach of contract there. There would be a diversity because I'm from Indiana. He's from Michigan. So I, as plaintiff would get to file the, case either in the northern district of indiana or i believe it would be the western district of michigan that niles is in um not 100 sure on that but then i would be filing it in the federal courts so the federal courts have district courts where there's like it's either like the northern district of indiana and the southern district of indiana or the two districts in, in indiana Different states have different numbers of districts. Um, you can like look at a map and see which district you're in, uh, but there's at least one in every state. And then, so all those districts are sort of what you'd call the trial level in the federal court. And then if we wanted to appeal that case, it would go to the circuit courts of appeals. So for instance, all of the district courts in Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin would go to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago oh. if they were to appeal the case. Okay. Um, and yeah, there's different uh, courts of appeals all over the country. Um, like the West Coast is the Ninth Circuit. Um, you hear about them a lot because a lot of uh, cases that end up in the Supreme Court, the, the vehicle that they use is the Ninth Circuit for the Supreme Court to want to talk about <laughs> Ninth Circuit rulings, um, you know, there, there's politics and everything involved in that. Um, so after you go to the Court of Appeals, then if they make a judgment and then you can appeal to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not have to, and as a matter of fact, does not hear every case that appeals to it. They're very selective about the cases that they hear. And they usually only hear a case if it is dealing with a really important area of the law that there hasn't been clarity about, or if there's what they call a circuit split, where say the seventh circuit 
has ruled this way in a certain factual situation. And the Ninth Circuit has ruled the opposite way in a very similar situation. It's bad to have conflicting precedent uh, between the Seventh and Ninth Circuits. So then the Supreme Court would hear the case, make a ruling, and then both the Seventh and the Ninth Circuits and all the courts below them would be obligated to follow that ruling by the Supreme Court. So in that case where the, the Seventh and the Ninth disagree, there isn't necessarily a precedent in the seventh that was set by the ninth. There was no. just the, the uh, I forget the vocab word already. Uh, persuasive authority. There was the, the persuasive ninth. authority from the ninth when the seventh, like say the seventh was the second case. They, they had persuasive authority, still didn't go with it, and, but it, and then it was different. So then say whoever, whatever the, the losing side of that seventh, uh, circuit court decision was they could then appeal to the supreme court because it was it didn't follow the the persuasive authority of the ninth court decision well they can they can appeal to the supreme court for whatever reason they want mm -hmm. it's just that the supreme court in deciding whether or not to, to take the case one of the factors they consider is whether or not there's been a disagreement among the circuits. Okay, so it, it, it um, makes it more likely that it will be heard, but it's not necessarily the reason that you would. Yeah, to put to put things into perspective, like I think like the Supreme Court only hears like less than five percent of the cases that get appealed to it. So like, there's a lot of people who just don't get heard by the Supreme Court, and for them, the court of last resort is the court of appeals for whatever district they're in okay or whatever circuit they're in my apologies right yes yes district and circuits are different i knew that <laughs> before today okay all right well oh and there's the bell again uh, i guess it's time for some biology uh, you know, we start off biology class with the, the question that every biology class starts off with. Do you have any family history in law? Not I know really. not directly, but yeah, so not immediately. Neither of my parents uh, were lawyers. And when I decided I that uh, I wanted to pursue the law, it was not really because I had any family connection or anything like that. It just so happens um, that two of my cousins are lawyers, uh, but both of them are like from out of town and it didn't have a huge bearing on like my decision to go into the law. Um, but yeah, nothing there. Ma main reason I wanted to go into law was just based off of my interests and stuff like that. It was not like a, a family calling or something like that. Okay, yeah. And, and this maybe goes into a more sociology, but uh, we, we had mentioned this right before we started recording. Uh, we were both in the, uh, shall we say, gifted kid programs uh, since first grade. Um, do you think maybe the the idea of being around other people who are, are high achieving uh, relative to the larger population in an academic sense, do you think that maybe contributed to, oh, I want to continue being in this realm of people who are studying hard and, and understanding the subject material and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely did um, both sort of like you said, the, the social aspect of it, 
I like, you know, to study. I like to work hard. Um, I like to be surrounded by people who are like-minded in that way. And that's one of the things that really drew me to law school and Notre Dame in particular is because, you know, if you're there, you're, you're pretty smart and you also work pretty hard. Um, and so it's, it's nice to be surrounded by people who, who get that and who value that. And then the other thing too, is I think just, you know, at the high school we went to, we were exposed to a lot of, you know, AP classes, uh, opportunities to, to study, um, complex subjects that not everyone has the opportunity to. And that set me up on a path that I think was really important in me ultimately going to law school because I had already taken so many uh, AP courses. I had most of my general education requirements out of the way going into undergrad. And so I was able to start focusing on program specific uh, courses pretty early on. And so like I was able to get a double major in political science and history with a minor in philosophy and my political science major had a concentration in pre-law. So I wouldn't have been able to do that if it weren't for, at least not in four years, were it not for uh, getting, getting some of those classes out of the way ahead of time. And I definitely think that like taking that, those types of courses in undergraduate really not only prepared me for law school, but also stimulated my interest in law school because I was doing a lot of writing, doing a lot of arguing, doing a lot of uh, reading of, you know, old complex philosophical stuff that <laughs> only, only people who, who really enjoy it can get anything out of. Um, so does that mean too, though, if, if you're kind of enjoying that level of work and, and being with people who are like-minded, is there, is there a level of, uh, it, I think there's some negative connotation to this, to this word, but like, is there a level of like group think at different institutions? Like if you were to be arguing a case against somebody who went to law school at Indiana, would they maybe make different cases just like on a, on a broader scale than somebody who went to Notre Dame? Or would they have a tendency to uh, be interested in more of maybe uh, being in trial law versus corporate law or that sort of thing? Yeah, um, I mean, that, that's something that I think all law schools and really all, all institutions deal with. Sure, yeah, absolutely. That, um, there's a certain level of uh, group think because everyone who's here has, you know, a certain, uh, had to do certain things to get here and certain personality types and certain life experiences uh, lend themselves more naturally to ending up in this place. But it's the goal of Notre Dame, at least, and most law schools, I, I dare say all law schools, <laughs> to have diverse voices and to focus on having you know, people with different life experiences, bringing that to the table. Um, that's not to say that there aren't differences in the types of people who go to different law schools. I mean, Notre Dame is a private Catholic law school. Um, that's, and, and it costs more than state schools. And all those things uh, 
sort of make its demographic profile look a little bit different than say an IU Bloomington. Um, but I do think that you'll find people of all sorts of different opinions, all sorts of different interests uh, at all sorts of at all sorts of law schools. There's people at Notre Dame that are interested in going into corporate uh, big law firms. There are people who are interested in becoming state prosecutors. There are people who are going to be public defenders, people doing public interest work, um, people who are going to get a law degree, but they're also getting a, a dual MBA degree and are going to be doing, you know, work in a boardroom that isn't necessarily legal, but having a law degree is helpful in make, being a decision maker in, in that arena. So there's people that are doing all sorts of different things. Um, there's no one thing that a lawyer does or that a law student does, but there are definitely differences um, from law school to law school. And that's you know why people make choices about where they wanna go. Okay, and did you know the, I mean, I guess, did you know what you wanted to go into when you were applying for law schools? And I guess we probably haven't actually said what you're going into, what type of yeah. <laughs> So I, to give a little bit of background, um, lawyers do all sorts of different things and you can specialize within certain areas. And by no means um, is there like an exhaustive list of the types of things lawyers can do. But there are two big dichotomies um, that sort of put lawyers into different baskets as far as career paths. Um, there's the civil or criminal side. So uh, a criminal case is probably one that most people are familiar with, you know, the state versus defendant, uh, violation of the criminal code or penal statutes. And that's a criminal case. You'll have prosecutors, you'll have defenders, um, you'll have, um, you know, hired defenders, then you also have public defenders. That's one area of the law. Then there's the civil side, that's parties suing each other. Um, sometimes that can overlap with criminal. Like if I were to punch you in the face, um, I would probably be charged with a criminal violation. And also you could sue me for battery if you had to get nose surgery because of my punch. Um, so there's sometimes overlap there, but then, you know, a lot of the time in the civil, uh, area, that's where you're going to have like business law and things like that. And then within civil law, there's another dichotomy, which is transactional work and litigation work. So transactional work is lawyers, you know, helping get deals done, helping companies, uh, do best practices within their various operations to make sure that things don't end up in the litigation department. Um, and then there's the litigation side, which is, you know, once there's a dispute, um, representing clients in those disputes. And that's, I think, what most people think of when they think of uh, lawyers. Yeah. And that's what I personally am interested in, civil litigation. Um, and I had a pretty good idea that that's what I wanted to do going into law school. And so I sort of picked my classes and picked what I was doing during the summers in order to, to steer things that way. 
Um, but it's also totally normal for people to go into law school without much of an idea of what they want to do and then figuring it out as they go. Oh my God, the bell rang again. That was fast. Well, I think that actually goes well with our next class of, of history um, of kind of when you started getting interested in law, um, I think is a, is a great place to, to start. And also just kind of thinking about um, why particularly you are uh, attracted to civil litigation. Um, I remember definitely growing up, uh, you were one of the one of the kids that would often, uh, shall we say, make a case to teachers at times. <laughs> Do you think that was a contributing factor is, is my question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I just have a personality that likes to argue. Um, I'm sure your and... wife would agree. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's honestly, that was a huge part of me going into law school. Um, it's not a great reason to go to law school though, <laughs> because the more that you, that um, I've learned is that yes, arguing is a part of the law, but an even larger part of the law is knowing when to not argue and knowing the strategy of how to handle that. Um, you know, in civil litigation, for instance, 99% of cases do not go to trial. The vast majority of the time, it's going to be either dismissed or there's going to be a settlement or something like that. And all of that is negotiation and problem solving. And um, while there's definitely value in being a good arguer, even in that, you know, in settlement negotiations and things like that, there's also a lot of value in being like a peacemaker and a problem solver. Uh, and that's, that's usually what's best for the client is having a lawyer with that attitude. And so that's also something that perhaps I didn't display it as much as I should have when I was an immature high school student, but I think I am decently good at and something that I hope to develop even more um, being a good mediator of conflict and being able to see issues um, objectively. That's one of the big, big skills of lawyers is being able to remove themselves from their own personal positions, from the emotions of a dispute and evaluate the merits of arguments neutrally to, to understand what's the best strategic move for my client knowing objectively where things sit on the arguments. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I was always really interested in, you know, growing up, it was always sort of like in the back of my mind, like I could be a lawyer. I always had the other things that I was interested in too, but then like always number two was like, or a lawyer. Um, and then as I went to undergrad and I had that pre-law concentration, like I said, um, I got to learn more about what the actual day-to-day -day of being a lawyer would be like. And I learned that it's a lot less arguing in a courtroom and a lot more, you know, emailing back and forth with opposing counsel to reach settlements and filing documents and doing a lot of writing and doing a lot of reading. And most people that would turn them off, but I actually really enjoy those aspects too. And so it really just sort of reaffirmed that that was something that I wanted to do. 
Um, and so, so say, now, say uh, you hadn't kind of really liked that side of it too. What were, what were you still considering at that point? Yeah, so uh, I was a political science, science and history major. And when I was going into undergrad, I was not sure if I was going to be going the legal route or the political route with my career. Um, even when I was early on at my time at Indiana Wesleyan, I was involved in, a, in several political campaigns. And some of my friends who were in the political science department have gone on to um, you know, work on campaigns and be involved in the political sphere, be staffers for, for various politicians. And uh, for a variety of reasons, I decided that that was not the path I wanted. Um, I, so I sort of steered more towards the law. I liked the fact that it was more objective, more calm, more of a meritocracy than in a lot of ways I've seen politics to be. Um, and so that, that's sort of what's, what steered me in that way. But if, if I were not a lawyer or not a law student, I would probably be involved either in politics or um, continuing on with history, maybe getting my PhD and, and teaching history. Cause I really enjoy history as well. Um, especially, you know, American history. Uh, one of my big uh, papers in, in undergrad was on like the history of the Bill of Rights being incorporated to the states. And I also did like a big- a Very law specific. Very law specific because at law that point I knew what I was going into. Um, but like legal history is, is a huge field um, that there's a lot to be researched about. And then also like um, in political science, I did papers on like ranked choice voting and impacts that would have on the electoral system. And I would also enjoy in, a, in another life doing the whole think tank route and being involved in political reforms of that sort. So yeah, there, there are a lot of other interests but they sort of dovetailed well into the law and really happy about where I'm at now. Nice. Oh my gosh, the bell rang again. And wait, this wasn't on the schedule. Um, this just popped up in my head. And I, I feel like if we didn't talk about it, I would be missing out on quality content. Um, I remember you talking about that ranked choice voting essay, that, that project that, that you worked on in undergrad. And as someone who, as an Iowan, who uh, voted in the or caucused in the past election season, really the only defense that I have for keeping the caucus around is that it is kind of a way of getting ranked choice voting. Um, and yeah, in, for those of you listening, uh, Daniel just kind of did a face uh, <laughs> in reaction a to that. A bit of an eye roll. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you, can you talk more about ranked choice voting? Yeah, kind of sure. How it so, potentially could work, structural issues with it, that sort of thing. Yeah, so on a basic level, uh, ranked choice voting means that instead of just saying, I vote for this candidate or I vote for this candidate, like things most of the time currently exist in the American electoral system, you would rank your choices. So you would vote, 
say, first, I want to vote for the Democratic candidate. But if the Democratic candidate is losing, I would rather vote for the Libertarian candidate than the Republican candidate, um, just hypothetically speaking. And one of the values of that is in a ranked choice voting system, you'll have what's called an instant runoff. So in order for a candidate to win an election, they have to get a majority of the votes. And so what they would do is they would do a first round where they would count everybody's first choice vote. And if one candidate got 50% or more of the first choice votes of the people voting, then they would win the election. And that would be that. But if a candidate does not reach 50%, then what would happen is you would take the last place candidate, you would remove them from consideration, and then all of the people who voted for the last place candidate as their first choice would then have their second choice counted as their vote. And so then we'd retabulate it, see if someone is north of 50%, and then if there is, then they win. If not, we do the whole process over again. Second last person's out, reallocate their votes, and see if we have someone past 50%. If, for instance, say we had you know, 10 different candidates. You, you talked about like the Democratic primary. I think by the time of the Iowa caucus, 10 was about how many? I don't know. There were a lot of people in the Democratic primary. Our, yeah, our precinct actually only had maybe six candidates that had okay. any sort of population there. But um, for example, like Biden, I think only actually had two people in the first, in the first, uh, in the first kind of count there but then he got uh a couple more in this no he he wasn't even viable after the first uh after the first tally and so most of his uh voters caucus goers moved over towards a different candidate yeah and the way that the iowa caucus works which is a little bit different than ranked choice voting if i if i understand it correctly is there's a certain viability threshold I think it was like 15% or something like that. It depends um, on, on your caucus site. Um, okay. Sometimes it's a raw number. Sometimes it's a percentage um, based on how many total people you have show up. But yeah. So like, it's not just the bottom person that gets redrafted in the second one. Um, it's anyone that's below the viability threshold. So like Biden wasn't viable. Yang wasn't viable. So both of those people would had to move to either uh, different locations. Uh, I think... Uh, Klobuchar wasn't viable either. Um, and so they, they had to redistri redistribute between Pete and Bernie, basically. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, the, the Yang, the people who were in charge, kind of like Yang's, they weren't staffers, but like head volunteers there. Um, they told no one else, they told their people there to not go anywhere else. Yeah. Which is so not ideal. <laughs> no, it's not. And so there, if in a ranked choice voting system and a, an Iowa caucus system, which is kind of like ranked choice, um, you can either vote in rank order. So say there's six candidates, you can go to on your ballot and say, oh, I want this one, number one, this one, number two, this one, number three, all the way down. And this is my least favorite candidate. And so I'm going to put them at six. So there's basically no way that my votes go into them. Mm -hmm. um, but then 
I'm sure that there's people either because they are really diehard for their candidate or they just don't want to get into the weeds of ranking every candidate. They'll just put, here's my first choice and that's it. And um, in that case, say hypothetically, um, there's someone who in a presidential election, in a ranked choice presidential election, you know, which doesn't exist, but hypothetically, someone were to say, oh, I'm gonna vote for the Green Party candidate. That's my one. And I don't care besides that. If they're not winning, I don't care. Well, then what would happen is when the Green candidate was in last place um, of the remaining candidates, that person's vote because uh, the Green Party candidate is eliminated would be taken out. And instead of going to another candidate, it would just be retired. Their vote would no longer count towards anything. It would just be sort of a, a null vote, which would reduce the number of votes necessary to reach 50%. Um, so it, it's effectively splitting the vote evenly among the remaining candidates. So that's one way that you deal with people who don't uh, rank all their choices in a ranked choice system. Um, so here are some of the benefits of ranked choice voting. The first one, and this is a big one, is it avoids what's called a spoiler effect. So this can happen in primaries, this can happen in general elections, it can happen in national elections, local elections, across the board. One of the big motivating factors that discourages third party candidates or independent candidates from running is a fear that they will dilute the votes of the candidate that they are ideologically most similar to and effectively make it so that the candidate who they are most dissimilar to will win the election. So for instance, if you were to have both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders run in the 2020 election against Donald Trump, it would be very likely that Donald Trump would win because you would have most of the people that vote for Bernie would have voted for Biden if it were just between the two of them. Um, and so that's, that's one of the reasons why we avoid having third party candidates. Well, if we had a ranked choice voting system, that wouldn't be a problem. If you were a Bernie voter, you could rank Bernie number one, Joe Biden number two, Donald Trump number three, and then if say we had, you know, 45% Trump, 30% uh, Biden and 25% Sanders after the first round of voting there, then Bernie Sanders would be out and Bernie Sanders voters would be able to move their votes to the second choice candidate. And it's not like they'd have to vote again. It, the data would already be there um, and we would just instantly do a runoff. And then the idea would be more people would be more happy with the winners of elections because they would have some say in who gets to win. Uh, they, they'd be able to voice their preference in the first round, but then if their preference doesn't win, they'd be able to you know, choose the least bad option remaining. Sure. Um, so what are the negative side effects of, of ranked choice voting? So the, the biggest thing is just that it's complex. 
and that people are resistant to change. Um, there's concerns that people might not understand it, that people um, would not vote because they don't think that it's a fair system or they don't understand the system. That's one of the drawbacks. Um, but honestly, and I, you know, I'm a fan of ranked choice voting, so I might be a very biased person to talk about this. But there's a lot of things that are drawbacks of the current system that the ranked choice system, while it still has the problems, it's not nearly as bad. Because, for instance, gaming the system, it's very difficult to strategically game the system to have a third party candidate spoil a major party candidate in a ranked choice system um, because those third party votes are going to get distributed among the main party candidates after those third party candidates are eliminated. That would make it so that the Republican Democratic uh, duopoly on political positions would be in danger because one of the big things that's keeping independent uh, or moderate candidates from running is a concern that they're going to get ostracized by either of the two main parties. Well, if, if there's a ranked choice system, there's not that danger. And the people will be able to argue their case on their merits. And, and if people vote for them, great. The other thing that's great about ranked choice voting is it takes it brings things out into the open about campaigning for the second choice. So this will make it so that um, candidates who are more consensus choices can say, look, it's okay if this person's your first choice, but I'm a candidate that you should consider as well. And I think that would lead to a much more healthier discourse between candidates, um, both in primaries and general elections, because there's going to be this thing, if I attack this person, will I be alienating their voters such that they will not choose me as a second choice in a ranked choice system. Right, and that's a huge part of the, the Iowa caucus too. I know as, as, as a super volunteer for Pete's campaign in Iowa, if, if I was knocking on doors and someone said that they were in the Yang gang or uh, part of Klobuchar's crew. Uh, Klobmaniacs. Yeah, <laughs> uh, like don't, like, and I mean, not even just those specific two uh, candidates. It was like, if they're obviously not going to have Pete their first choice, still just talk to them, hear them out, associate positive things for them with Pete's campaign as that second choice was a, was a huge part of it. Uh, another interesting thing that I think is kind of, uh, kind of what we're getting towards with the uh, breakdown of just two parties and then spoiling, um, that kind of leads to what's often called like the big tent of the, the Democratic Party is often where it's kind of lumped in with. Uh, and interestingly enough, if you want to learn more about the Democratic Big Tent, head on over to this week's sponsor of the school bell, duncansdrafts.substack.com. Oh my goodness. And then look at that. The bell rang once again. We are just flying through this episode. I'm loving it. Um, all right. So I think we only got maybe two more classes to get through. We are going a little long on time here, but um, that's good. I think we're getting good content here, um, but it's time for recess. All right. And with recess comes the fun times, the memes, the media. Um, let's start off with the memes. 
what sort of jokes are there in law school that maybe you know common tropes that people always are asking other law or asking lawyers about um what do you got for me yeah i mean there are a lot of lawyer jokes um and you know that some of them are earned i think one of the biggest tropes that um that lawyers deal with is oh you're a lawyer uh, help me with this legal problem, or what's the law about this? Um, and for a lot of reasons, we can't give good answers to those questions. Um, first off, uh, being a lawyer, for the most part, does not mean, or going to law school does not mean you memorize the law. Um, I, going through law school, have a general understanding of many different areas of the law. But until I practice in a specific area for a long time, I won't be able to, without researching it first, just answer, you know, oh yeah, this is, this is how many years the minimum sentence is for X crime. Like that, that's not the type of thing that we learn, um, or at least not, it's not the focus of what we learn. Um, and so, you know, being a lawyer means that you have the resources to find the answers for those questions. Um, but a lot of the time, even if you have the resources to find the answers to those questions, uh, there's good reason why you don't just give people legal advice. Um, first off, <laughs> yeah, so a lawyer is what's called a fiduciary. Uh, fiduciary, sorry, fiduciary. Um, which means that they have certain duties of loyalty and care to the people that are their clients. And if there is a lawyer-client relationship and someone relies on that information and it turns out to be bad information or things go badly, if they claim oh yeah, well, when I asked him what I should do, I was asking him, you know, as a lawyer, my lawyer, then that's a big problem for a lawyer because then we have liability for the potential reliance that happened there. Um, and then there's other issues like, um, you know, we have what's called the rules of professional responsibility, which require us to, you know, have certain, uh, relationships with our client or have certain dynamics between the lawyer client relationship. And, you know, when you are giving free advice to friends or family, it can very easily blur those lines. And then you can get into trouble with the ethics board and things are bad for you. Um, do things, I mean, normally is that an issue? If someone says, hey, what should I do here? Can you give me some help? Would it be that big of a problem to just say in a general matter, like, I mean, this is what I think, but if it's a serious issue, you should probably go get a lawyer. No, most of the time that's not a problem. Um, but, you know, lawyers have to be careful. And also because they're lawyers, they're very careful about crossing their I's and dotting their T's and not doing things that could come back to bite them in the butt. So yeah, that, that's part of it. Do you think that sometimes, you know, uh, Law and Order, one of the longest running television shows and all of its spinoffs and all of that is is a huge kind of cultural mainstay in the media. Um, do you think that also kind of contributes to the fact that people will often come and ask 
lawyer, like lawyer friends for advice, just because it feels like something that is so accessible and so like, oh, I understand law, that sort of thing. Like I can just, I can figure it out for myself. Yeah, I mean, law and order is, is uh, not- It's a, a documentary, right? Oh. Yeah, no, it, it gets everything right. No, it does not at all. Um, and there's honestly a big problem with people watching Law and Order and thinking they understand the law or what being mm. a lawyer is like, um, both on like the general public side and also people going to law school thinking it's going to be Law and Order, and it's not. What, um, what is, in your opinion, the most accurate lawyer? I don't know, maybe you haven't consumed that many of these, so you don't know, but like Boston Legal versus Suits versus, uh, I guess, Law and Order. Like what's, is there any of them that are even close to accurate? Um, some are more accurate in different ways. Like I think that there are some, some shows that get the law better there are some shows that get like the law firm dynamic better, um, but none of them are really great. Um, okay. Like I, the, the main one that I've watched all the way through is Suits and Suits is not great. Um, <laughs> it's, like, I mean, it gets kind of ridiculous after a certain point, um, but, and as we're talking about memes, um, one of the memes that's on the, I saw it on the r slash law school Reddit forum was you know, it's sort of like the, the domino effect and you have like these little uh, dominoes becoming like a big domino. And it was like uh, Meghan Markle getting a job as an actress on Suits uh, or a, a USA <laughs> legal drama. And then like domino, 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 fall of the British monarchy. Um, USA causing the fall of the British monarchy. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh so that that as a little aside but um yeah i don't think shows do a great job uh of 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 capturing the law i do think that there are some really good movies out there um i just watched on netflix the trial of the chicago seven the man to watch um it's an oscar best picture nom i believe yeah um and i watched it and it earned it it, it's a it's a great movie um and i mean it's not it's it's very dramatized but i think that there's nothing there that's that's too out of bounds or like too divergent from what a courtroom experience like that would be um with the caveat that like the courtroom experience in the chicago seven is very different from what a normal courtroom experience would be like um, because it was such a dramatic and publicly charged case. Um, most cases, you know, go on with very few people in the audience and very few people other than the parties caring about what the outcome is. Um, but then obviously there are the exceptions. Sure. So, but yeah, I, I think that um, le legal dramas and things like that uh, don't paint a great picture. Um, but I mean, it leads to people being interested in the law and that that's better than them being completely, you know, in the dark about it. And lawyers just being these weird people who say all these things that make no sense to them. Where, where was watching all of suits on your timeline of 
going into law? It was during undergrad. So I was not in law school yet. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think that Suits had painted a picture of what like the, the New York big firm life could be. Um, and I don't think it's very accurate, but I don't know because I'm not in New York and maybe things are as crazy as they say in Suits. Um, but I doubt it. How likely is it that a lawyer who was blinded in childhood then got heightened other senses and uh, became a very successful lawyer in Hell's Kitchen in, in New York? Is that, is that likely? It's possible. All right, it's sounds good. <laughs> I, uh, for context, I just read uh, one of Kevin Smith's runs of Daredevil from the from the 90s. And um, for those of you who don't know, I was talking about Daredevil as the blind lawyer. Um, but he goes into a little, like, there's a little sidebar of how you were talking earlier about the, the need to have, like, an objective view of conflicts. Um, and the, the series run, it's called Guardian Devil, uh, goes slightly into it i haven't read that much daredevil so i'm assuming he goes into it a little bit more in other places too but it was a really good comic i'd recommend it to you daniel i'd recommend it to a lot of other people it was a it was a fun time yeah i actually haven't read any of the daredevil comics or watched i know there was like a netflix series um that that went into daredevil but i didn't get around to watching it so i, I definitely should yeah for sure Oh, and there you go. There's our, our, our last uh, class bell for the day. I guess not the end of the day, but we have uh, a bonus one. We're talking about some current events. Uh, when we were talking about scheduling this interview, uh, I had just seen a TikTok about Notre Dame's law school admissions. Uh, and I was hoping Daniel could shed some light on the, we'll call it a scandal, um, barely made news. It's really strange that I had heard about it, but... Yeah, can you, can you talk about kind of like what happened, why that was an issue, why that wasn't an issue, your opinions on it, that sort of thing? Sure. So um, just for a little bit of context, uh, there was an article posted on a website called Above the Law, which is kind of like a forum for law students and lawyers uh, for, you know, gossip and stuff like that, um, and that talked about... Uh, something that happened with the Notre Dame Law School admissions process for the upcoming school year. So to give a little bit of context, um, the law school admissions process is super long, super competitive, uh, not something that a lot of people enjoy. Um, and one of the things that, that happens is in mid-April, there will be a deadline for students to place their deposits at the law school that they intend to attend. Um, so you will get, you know, you'll apply and then you'll get an answer from the school whether you've been accepted or waitlisted or rejected. Uh, sometime, it, it really varies, but like before April by a significant amount, 
And then you will have the time to put down your deposit by that deadline and that will reserve your spot. Um, putting down a deposit is pretty normal. Um, Notre Dame's is $600. That's what I paid to, to reserve my seat. And normally you have until that date, uh, say for instance, it was, I think April 15th um, was, yeah, that was the stated uh, deadline date to put down your deposit. And then later on, you're gonna have to pay tuition, which is a heck of a lot more than $600. Um, but that's going to place your seat. And they require the $600 just so that people are serious about reserving their spot because it's non-refundable. That way you can't, you know, reserve a spot at a bunch of different schools and drop out of all of them. And that's bad for law schools for a lot of different reasons. Um, but it's worth noting um, because it, this is sort of not addressed in the article, trashing Notre Dame admissions. That, that deposit, if you have financial hardship, you can apply for a waiver and Notre Dame gives waivers to that uh, deposit requirement all the time. So, um, what happened was Notre Dame decided to, and this was a very unique thing, say, we are going to accept deposits up until April 15th or when spots fill in our class. So like one class at Notre Dame is typically around 200 students. Um, so it's a, it's a smaller law school. And to give some historical context, um, when I started law school, I started law school in 2019, my incoming class was what you call over-enrolled. So when law schools give out offer letters and scholarship letters, they obviously give more out than they have spots in the class because they're expecting that a certain percentage of students, even though they're accepted, are not going to attend. Um, and there are really smart data analytics folks who find out what the optimal number of people to give acceptances to and how much scholarship money to give in order to make it so their yield is at such a rate that they'll have, you know, right around the number they want for the class actually accept. Well, in my class 2019, something was off in the model and they had too many people accept offers to go to Notre Dame. This is the first time it had happened in a long time. It's not a, a normal problem because they work really hard to make sure that their models are on point. So what happened was, and this is back in 2019, this is before all of the scandal we're gonna talk about. They sent an email, I remember getting this email in the summer right before I was gonna start law school, basically giving us additional scholarship money if we were willing to defer a year to all the people that were coming into the class. Okay. So I know that at least some people took them up on that offer because our class ended up being right at the enrollment cap and we were over it. So, um, you know, it, it was a good way of solving the problem of over enrollment. Well, like most things, COVID had an impact on uh, law school enrollment numbers. A lot of people who were going to go into law school in the fall of 2020 uh, decided either not to 
or to defer a year. And that happened with undergraduate college institutions. It happened with law schools, happened with everything. Um, Like the Notre Dame class immediately below me is under-enrolled pretty significantly because they just didn't have a lot of people that were interested in, in starting law school in the midst of a pandemic, both because, you know, there was the concern that there would be online classes, which might not be worth the money. Um, and also just concerns about job prospects in a new economy. So of an under-enrolled class immediately below me. And so now they're uh, doing the admission cycle for the next class. And the anticipation by most law schools is that because we had so many people defer and so many people who would be entering law school decide not to last year, we're gonna see a lot more this year because of all those people that waited. And so we're going to adjust our models and adjust our, um, the number of people we're gonna give uh, acceptances to under the assumption that we're going to have a really heavy pool this year. And sure enough, it, it, it's bared out to be the case that like most law schools, their median LSAT scores for acceptance are running really high just because there's a lot of people competing for a small number of spots. And so it's just pushed things so that you have to be even better to get into the top schools. Um, so there was a new variable that was really hard to quantify into the equation for admittance this year. Schools had different ways of dealing with that. Some schools said, we're just going to reduce the number of people that we admit, and we're going to increase the size of our wait list because there's so much uncertainty in our model so that we'll make sure that we have, we don't over-enroll and then we can selectively let people in off the wait list. Notre Dame took a different approach that many people think was a worse approach and that's a fair critique, but their approach was we're gonna give the same number of acceptances generally. I don't know if they gave the same number, but we're not going to ma like maximize our wait list. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to just say, here's your offer. Once we have a certain number of people put down their deposits, everyone else has just moved to the wait list. So move, so move on your uh, deposit. And they put in their email that, you know, generally speaking, we don't have, uh, a, you know, people enroll earlier than the deadline. Like we don't have our spots filled before the deadline it's only happened twice before in the past 20 years, and we don't anticipate it happening this year. Well, yeah, but in previous years, there wasn't the caveat that you had to apply, you had to put down your deposit early to guarantee you're in. Yes. And one of the, so that, uh, that note obviously changed behaviors. Yeah. Um, so what ended up happening was uh, things went along like normal until about a week ago. And, and then they said in their initial emails to people when they got their acceptance letters, um, you know, they were very clear about the policy. And they also said, we're going to email you when we hit 60%, 70%, 80%, 90%. So you know what to do. Like, you know, you know, if the deadline is actually going to come up sooner than April 15th. Well, 
uh, Notre Dame admissions, I believe it was on like Monday, late afternoon, sent out an email saying to people, hey, just want to let you know, we're at 60%. We don't anticipate um, filling up necessarily, but we are running ahead of where we normally are in most years. So get your deposits in. Um, well, what happened was that email effectively caused a bank run on <laughs> law school admissions. And then within the course of Tuesday, from like 9 a.m. to like 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. or something like that, they went from 60% enrollment to 100% enrollment. Yeah, so that's how Which the TikTok I had seen made it sound like admission, like accept or like acceptance letters went out. And then within six hours, it was 100% full. No, no, no. So, But it, it was people, a longer, it was a slower burn that had some accelerant uh, thrown onto the fire last Monday. And one of the things that was a huge mistake was the non-realization by the admissions department that that, that, that accelerant would act as accelerant. Yeah. Um, which seems like something they should have predicted. I would um, think so. I mean, but, telling people that a Black Friday sale is only available until 2 p.m. is going to get people there earlier. Yeah. So so now, you know, Notre Dame has caught all this flack because um, their, their decision led to a lot of people who already had offers from Notre Dame get moved to the wait list because they didn't get their deposits in in time, um, which is obviously super frustrating. Um, and then people just being upset that they were forced to make a decision in 24 hours, effectively, right? Um, and they had to come up with $600 in 24 hours. Because at that point, if you hadn't applied for the financial uh, or for the waiver of the deposit fee, it's not like you were going to be able to apply for a waiver, get it approved, then get your deposit, like get your yeah. spot. It's not going to happen in, in the time period you need. So it was basically like $600 now or else you're out. Um, which is certainly not the outcome that I think anybody wanted. Um, and so I think, you know, it was a mistake by Notre Dame. Um, they, I think, just didn't understand how saturated the market was going to be um, with people wanting to apply to Notre Dame or wanting to accept applications from Notre Dame, rather. Um, their models were off. This policy turned out to be bad in practice. I don't think it was nefarious in intent or anything like that. Um, but, you know, there, there are sometimes just things that are hard to quantify in your model to find out how many people are gonna be interested in Notre Dame. I think that there were some, some things like the fact that Notre Dame has been in person while some other law schools have not been that uh, might have in a hard to quantify way increased people's interest in Notre Dame. I think the fact that Notre Dame recently had a former professor nominated to the Supreme Court and the idea, or I guess the impression by at least some people that that makes Notre Dame more prestigious or more well-connected or yada, yada, yada. Um, that might be a difficult to quantify mover in people's behavior. Um, so there were just a lot of things that led to Notre Dame getting over-enrolled. Well, I guess not getting over-enrolled, but ending up with this exploding offer situation um, that could have been foreseen, but also it's just really difficult to quantify. Sure.
Nope. And, and we can link to the article uh, in the show notes or on the website absolutely. so that people can see the uh, little bit more critical of Notre Dame perspective um, from above the law, because I obviously am a Notre Dame student. Um, I know the admissions people. I, I know that they're good people. So my attitude and my perspective is not going to be completely detached and independent. No, look at that lawyer answer of looking at the objective truth. Well, with that, uh, with that last bell there, it's uh, time for us to hop on the bus and, and head on home. I know you've got a, you've got a jab coming up here soon, but uh, do you have anything you want to promote? Another podcast, Twitter, Instagram, nonprofit, anything at all? Um, the concept? You know what? I... I don't have any social medias to promote. I'm something of a social media ghost. Um, but I will say this. I just listened to uh, the episode you did um, a while back with Mark Mazurik. And he talked about the importance of supporting uh, local journalism. And I would just echo that. Um, it, it's an important thing uh, in, in societies that we have good local journalism, especially when in a lot of areas, uh, the media and journalism as a profession has been somewhat under attack. Um, yeah, so do that. And also um, when you get a jury duty, uh, go to jury duty and don't try and get out of it because when good people don't do jury duty, it only leads to the juror pool being not representative of the United States population. That's just all I'll say about that. Do all jury right. duty. And it's a lot of fun. It can be at least. All right. Well, that rubs it up for Daniel in law school. Uh, Daniel, thanks for telling me why you do that. Happy to come on. Thanks, Kevin. Hey everyone, thanks for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to be a guest on a future show, or if you have a question for a previous guest, head on over to www.kevinhasapodcast.com and fill out the forms there. Thanks.